Welcome to Orphaned Entertainment, a podcast who for the past 10 years has dedicated itself to the discussion and review of public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher. With me is the woman who can charm the socks off any big city architect. It's Lydia. <laughs> I was going to say, oh, you should let me do the intro. With me is the man who can go out with any model in the city. Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Lydia, how are you t- this wonderful month? I'm always pleased to be here uh, and looking forward to talking about this particular movie and models. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, before we go any further, I want to first thank everyone for tuning in to this month's episode. Orphaned Entertainment is available wherever you like to get your podcasts. Wherever you choose to listen, if you have the option to do so, please rate and review the show. It really does help get the show out to more people. Another great way to help is just by sharing the episode you are listening to on whatever social media platforms you use. You can follow the link in the show notes to all our social media sites. You can find our YouTube channel, and you can learn how you can support the show financially. If you would like to email us with any comments, suggestions, or feedback on this or any episode, please type or record an audio message and send it to orphanedentertainment at gmail.com. Let's listen to an Ellery Queen one-minute mystery and a promo for another podcast. And when we return, we will check in to 1939's Hotel for Women. Ellery Queen's Minute Mysteries. This is Ellery Queen with a case I call the Crossword Puzzle Murder. When a Dr. Ingalls was found dead in his study, a crossword puzzle unfinished in front of him, police called me in knowing I was an avid crossword puzzle fan. A prime suspect was the doctor's son, Arnold. I noticed the number seven down was circled. I checked the puzzle, and the number called for the two-letter word for a three-toed sloth. Ingalls had identified his murderer before he died. It was young Arnold Ingalls, the doctor's son. In a moment, I'll tell you why. Greetings. Welcome to Film Gazers, a podcast focusing on the science fiction, horror, fantasy, trinity, and 20th century entertainment. I'm Steph. I'm Jess. We're cousins slash besties. Join us as we reminisce, discuss, and review films from our childhood. Follow on Instagram at Film Gazers and listen to the show wherever you like to get your podcasts. Later, taters! In the case of the crossword puzzle murder, the two-letter word for a sloth is spelled A-I. A-I also happens to be the initials of Arnold Ingalls. Thus, a puzzle, unpuzzled a puzzle. Listen again to Ellery Queen's Minute Mysteries. Hotel for Women, or Elsa Maxwell's Hotel for Women, is a 1939 drama directed by Gregory Radoff, starring Linda Darnell and James Ellison. The screenplay was written in part by Elsa Maxwell, who also appears in the film as Mrs. Tilford, the socialite who stays at the Hotel Sherrington to recharge. Darnell plays Marsha from Syracuse, who comes to New York to reunite with her beau Jeff, played by James Ellison. They were sweethearts back in their hometown, but Marsha's family apparently refused to allow her to marry Jeff. Now a year later, Jeff has been working on establishing himself as an architect in New York City. Marcia, thinking she made a mistake all that time ago by listening to her family, runs off to New York to right the wrong. Finding a place to stay, she checks in to the Hotel Sherrington, a hotel for women only, where she meets a variety of characters, many played by Ann Southern, Jean Rogers, Lynn Berry, June Gale, and Joyce Compton, to name a few. 
When Marcia meets Jeff for dinner, Jeff doesn't seem as in love with her as she is with him. He is caught up in the big city life of parties and socializing and can't be, quote-unquote, tied up with things, unquote, right now. Marcia breaks the relationship off and plans on returning home. But after a night out with one of her floor mates, she decides New York City may not be a bad place to stay for a while and asks for her new friend's help in becoming a model. Luck smiles her way and she lands a job as the new model for a large cigarette ad campaign. Newfound fame and new friends collide with old flames as Jeff tries to protect her from perceived threats to both of their happinesses. Now, there are a lot of stars in this film, so I'm only going to focus on a couple names. I'm sure a few others will be mentioned in the discussion. I definitely want to mention Elsa Maxwell. Elsa Maxwell was a gossip columnist, author, songwriter, screenwriter, radio personality, and professional hostess renowned for her parties for royalty and high society figures of the day. She is credited with the introduction of the scavenger hunt and treasure hunt for use as party games. Maxwell was responsible for the success of ventriloquist Edgar Bergen in one way or another. I found two stories about this. One I conveyed in our review of Letter of Introduction, that Bergen was spotted by Noel Coward at one of Maxwell's parties, and another that said after working in small venues for nearly 20 years, Bergen himself uh, pestered Maxwell for help, and that he was persistent enough in his telephone calls that Maxwell agreed to meet him, and when Bergen arrived, he introduced her to Charlie McCarthy. That meeting with Maxwell was an instant <laughs> success, and Maxwell asked Rudy Valley to find him a place on his radio program. I'm guessing there may be some truth somewhere in the middle of those two stories. <laughs> Seems very likely. <laughs> Linda Darnell uh, progressed from modeling as a child to acting in theater and film, making her film debut here in Hotel for Women. She also appeared in supporting roles in big-budget films for 20th Century Fox throughout the 1940s. She won critical acclaim for her work in Unfaithfully Yours in 48 and A Letter to Three Wives in 49. Her career was through the urging of her mother. Darnell once said, Mother really shoved me along, spotting me in one contest after another. I had no great talent, and I didn't want to be a movie star particularly, but Mother had always wanted it for herself, and I guess she attained it through me. So, very early stage mom. Yeah, yes. Darnell was a model at the age of 11 and was acting on the stage by the age of 13. She initially started modeling to earn money for her household and performed mostly in beauty contests. In November 1937, a talent scout for 20th Century Fox arrived in Dallas looking for new faces. Encouraged by her mother, Darnell met him, and after a few months, he invited her for a screen test in Hollywood. Arriving in California in February of 38, Darnell initially was rejected by film studios and was sent home because she was declared too young. A year or so later, Darnell was featured in a Gateway to Hollywood talent search and initially landed a contract at RKO Pictures. When 20th Century Fox offered her a part, Donnell wanted to accept, but RKO was unwilling to release her. Nevertheless, by age 15, she was signed to a contract at 20th Century Fox and moved to a small apartment in Hollywood in 1939. So wait a minute. Do the math with me. Linda Darnell was born in 1923. Mm -hmm. This movie mm -hmm. was made in 1939. She would have been 16 years old in this. Yes. She looks 
30. Well, she looks 25. This was definitely something that was going to come up in our discussion with this. It's so <laughs> I was wild. very surprised that when she began filming this, uh, she was 15 years old. How is that possible? She turned 16 the year this film was released. Women look different now. <laughs> yes. I mean, holy cow. Mm-hmm. Gosh, if you guys haven't watched this movie yet, pause this podcast right now and go watch at least the beginning of this movie to the point where it in, 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 ugh, introduces these characters. I genuinely, I at one point she's talking to some of the other ladies in the hotel and they're talking about being models. And one of them that's been a model for three years is talking about the freshness is starting to go. I'm starting to notice the, the tightness around here. She motions to her mouth and you see like, it just goes from woman woman to the next, like showing her response to these to these statements. And and I'm thinking, well, gosh, you know, this the lady that's talking, she might be hitting around, you know, 28, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, and then the older ones, Irene, I'm thinking, well, maybe she might be maybe, you know, 30, something like that. And so I'm thinking that's crazy for her to have been 15 yep. in this movie is yep. I don't think I can rewatch this movie with the same response that i have no, the first two no. times i've watched it i that is genuinely disturbing <laughs> wow only 50 at the time darnell posed as a 17 year old and was listed as 19 years old by the studio wow in an interview during production of hotel for women darnell admitted that movie making was not what she expected Quote, I'm learning what really hard work is. At home in Dallas, I used to sprawl on the lawn and dream about the nice, easy time screen stars must be having in Hollywood. But the last two months have taught me quite another story. Darnell was assigned to the female lead opposite Tyrone Power in the light romantic comedy Daytime Wife in 39. The success of that film led her to be cast in her first big budget film in May of 1940, appearing again opposite Power in uh, Brigham Young. They became a highly publicized on-screen couple, which prompted studio head Daryl uh, F. Zanuck to add 18 more romantic scenes to Brigham Young. Oh, wow. In the summer of 1940, Darnell began working on The Mark of Zorro, in which she again co-starred with, as Powell's sweetheart. Powers, yeah. The, Mark of, yeah. the Mark of Zorro was a box office sensation. That's how I know her. That's what that and uh, Letter to Three Wives. I recognized her, and when I went back through the list, I thought, "Oh, that's what I know her from." But that's she. So she would have been maybe seventeen in the Mark of Zorro. That is wild. I'm I'm still reeling. Obviously, that is just (laughs) amazing to me. Well, sometime after Mark of Zorro, she was paired with Henry Fonda for the first time in the western Chad Hanna, which was her first Technicolor film. The film received only moderate attention, unlike Darnell's next film, Blood and Sand, in 1941, which was shot in location in Mexico and in which he was reunited with Tyrone Power. It was the first film for which he was widely critically acclaimed. Darnell later claimed that her downfall began after Blood and Sand. In an interview, she said, People got tired of seeing the sweet young things I was playing, and I landed at the bottom of the roller coaster. The change and realization were very subtle, but I had the fame and money every girl dreams about and the romance. I'd crammed 30 years into 10, and while it was exciting, I would do it all over again. I still know I missed out on my girlhood. The fun little things now seem important. 
While not the end of her career, the following years were indeed a roller coaster. Clashes with Zanuck, allegedly due to unwanted advances by the studio head, uh, were reported, and along with his alleged jealousy of, of her eloping with a 40-year-old cameraman, uh, which led her to being passed over for roles or being completely replaced several weeks into shooting. She would continue to work for 20th Century Fox throughout the 40s until she was released from her contract in 52. Darnell said of this in the book Hollywood Beauty, Linda Darnell and the American Dream by Ronald Davis, Suppose you've been earning 4000 to 5000 a week for years. Suddenly you were fired and no one would hire you at any figure remotely comparable to your previous salary. I thought in a little while I'd get offers from other studios, but not many came along. The only thing I knew how to do was to be a movie star. No one expects to last forever in this business. You know that sooner or later studios are going to let you go, but who wants to be retired at 29? Well, and gosh, yeah, if, you know, we already talked about in previous episodes at this time, if you were working for a studio and pissed off the studio head, or sorry, angered the studio head, <laughs> then you're, they could just shelf you. They didn't have yep. to put you in any movies. They could essentially prevent you from acting for anybody. She would return to 20th Century in the mid-50s to work in television, and she also returned to the stage. She was working up to and until her untimely death in 1965. She was unfortunately caught in a house fire caused by careless smoking and passed away as a result of her injuries. A a life lived very quickly. Mm -hmm. And very early. Uh, Oh, absolutely. I think think probably we often don't realize how young some of the actresses are in these earlier movies. Like, definitely, I I don't often do the math on that and think, how old was this person? But it... You know, with that with that knowledge, and of course, with a lot of things happened quicker for people back then. You know, you were you got married earlier. You if you were getting a job, you got a job a lot earlier. You know, it wasn't unusual for kids to be working to support the family. But I think we sometimes forget. You know, gosh, I'm I'm in my forties, and I can't imagine as a fifteen or sixteen year old being cast in. a a Hollywood film across from a man like genuinely. And there are a couple of, there are a couple of kisses in this movie that I think that's, that's pretty heated, you know, and for her to have been 15, 16, when that's being filmed, it is just startling. And, and, but I have to think that probably wasn't as rare as we just off the cuff expect. I looked up what the median age of marriage was Mm -hmm. in 1939 Mm -hmm. And I think the median age for women was uh, 21 and a half. Yeah. That's, that's the average yeah. age. Yeah. Which means there's a lot of very young women getting yes. married. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of 16-year-olds. And, and we, you know, the, the laws have changed. Definitely, you know, there's not an expectation that people are going to go be farmers, you know, the expectations for education. And there's a, a little bit I wanted to talk about a little bit about the idea of a hotel hotels for women. This came into real fruition in 1903. They didn't really exist before then. Uh, one had been created in the 1800s and failed pretty quickly. But uh, the first really successful one opened in 1903. And, and, you know, after that, in 1920, women were given the vote. 
And after that, it became much, much more common for women to leave the house and go work uh, or, or leave home and go look for a job, move to a city. So I think up until that point, you know, even even up at this point, up to this point, the ma- the major expectation is that you're going to maybe graduate high school and probably get married right away. Mm-hmm. I think that's the expectation for most people. Yeah, or if you did go to college, it was more to meet the man you're going to marry. Mm-hmm. Or a trade versus, school, yeah. You're going to yeah. a typist school or a secretarial academy, something like that. Right. You get even 20, 30 years past this into the Doris Day films, and you know there's it still is not super common to have women that are just wanting to be career girls, right? There's still that expectation that if it's you know if it's in the office and it's the 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 what is the phrase that they use anything in a tight sweater something like that you know and the expectation is still a woman that's in an office is really just looking for a husband and that's right. you know decades after this period of time exactly and then once they marry of course they would stay home and raise the kids and mm-hmm. keep yeah. the house what's right. really wild to me about this particularly is she just doesn't look like a child and. And a 15-year-old is a child. I mean, you know, a 15-year-old legally and emotionally and actually is a child. But this, she looks like a woman. It's so, it's so, and I know there's, you know, elements of the clothing for one thing. We just don't dress well. Today, we just don't dress well. (laughs) It's just true. We don't have that classic kind of cut. There's not the emphasis on form and we don't. You know, people are continuing to dress. I I still dress like I'm in college. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. gosh, hopefully not in public, but definitely at home. You know, and we wear t-shirts and things like that instead of structured clothing. So there's an element of that there, I'm sure. But uh, between the makeup, the hairstyles, and the clothes, it's so difficult to tell the ages of these women. Yeah. No, I, I, I was shocked when I read the little factoid yeah. that she was that she had turned 16 the year this movie was released. Yeah. I'm like, wait, what? And you go back and watch the film the second time. And there is, I, like you said, I'm almost kind of glad that she really doesn't look that oh, age. Oh, gosh, yes. Because <laughs> there, there are definitely moments in this film where now that you know... There's a definite creep. A factor. lot of creepiness to it, yeah. And if, and I think she's not playing that age in the movie. She's playing an eighteen or nineteen year old, twenty year old maybe, yeah. But um, her character through it, I found to be just fascinating because she is like that small town innocent kind of girl, but she's also very clever. And she's getting, I, I love how a couple of times in this movie, you have the other, uh, some of the other models are giving her advice on how to behave in different situations. And you have the one on the one side that's tr- telling her, you have to manipulate the situation, you know, you know, talk, talk the guy up, compliment him. And the other girl's saying, no, no, be intelligent, be yourself. And she, somehow she, in every situation, seems to really land right in the middle. And mm-hmm. uh, I really, I enjoyed that, especially the second viewing of it. I really enjoyed that her character, she's intelligent, but she's also earnest. And she also understands how to encourage men to find her appealing. And, it's, and she does it not in a, in a skeezy way. She does it by being just kind of open-faced, honest, and 
but also uh, there's uh, we'll, we'll get to it in a little bit I'm sure there's a scene in this movie in particular that not knowing her actual age I found enchanting <laughs> but we'll we'll talk about that I, I imagine at some point we're going to talk a little bit about Sydney Blackmer as well uh, who plays uh, Craig in this Mr. Craig I believe that um, John Halliday plays. Oh, John I'm so Craig. sorry. You're right. I've got the wrong name pulled up. No, no, we definitely need to talk about that at some point. But we we should probably start with some of the characters we see earlier on first, at least. Oh, oh <laughs> gosh, yeah, film. I cut right in there and just like went. Uh, we went on a whole. You're at the end of the trail. film already. I oh, know. Well, and so at the end, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's back up. <laughs> I enjoyed actually all the little. Uh, friends that she makes the 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 floor mates their neighbors at at the hotel i think are just fun i kind of want an entire movie just with the (laughs) exploits on in the hotel Mm -hmm. because there are some great characters um and we got uh eileen uh, there's a nancy uh joan elsa maxwell Mm -hmm. miss bromley your room will be ready in 10 minutes oh thank you just moving in yes I'm Maxwell. Elder Maxwell. Elder Maxwell? Oh, I know about you. Don't tell me you live here. Oh, I do on and off. When I've been on too many yachts and heard too much brilliant conversation, I check in here to recuperate. Many people go to the mountains for a change. Florida, even the South Seas. I come here. Why? Because it's alive, my dear. I like young people, young hopes, ambitions, fresh faces. It's like a shot of the arm to me. Just come to New York, haven't you? <laughs> yes. Is it sticking out all over me? Mm-hmm. More or less. It'll ship off if you stay. You smoke? No, thank you. The name's Bromley, isn't it? Yes, Marsha Bromley. Nice name, Marsha. You come to New York to study or get a job? Oh, no. What's his name? Jeffrey Cannon. He's been here almost a year now. I just talked to him on the phone. You gonna marry him? You bet. <laughs> nice thing, love. The kind you've got. It's very scarce around here. Everybody's rushing ahead so fast, they leave it behind. Oh, uh, pardon me, Miss Maxwell. Mrs. Bronson is waiting. Come, Miss Bronson, I'll be right out. See you again, Marsha, and welcome to our little club. Thank you, Miss Maxwell. I want to ask your advice about something, Miss Elsa. Oh, won't it keep, Emily? I'm just rushing off to a lecture. Oh, anything good? I hope so. I'm giving it. Oh. What a great character. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I really enjoyed her. I can't help getting the impression that she really is appearing as herself in this as well. I, I believe that's true, too. I, I think I read, too, that this is the first film I think she appears in. Yes, I believe that's correct. Right, yeah. No, so I definitely think she kind of plays herself. And, and some of the stories she tells and the advice she gives, I have a feeling it's like, real world advice sort of or at least that's the advice you would probably get from Elsa Maxwell I definitely felt that as well and actually it's kind of funny there are a couple of times in this movie where people are giving advice and I thought there it they do just a couple of times where they really frame in on the person that's speaking one is when the actress or the a uh, model who's been modeling for three years now is talking about how afraid she is and how she feels like it's mm-hmm. time to get married, it, which is a, a really strong moment. That actress, I just thought, wow, she's good, right? But also, you're exactly right. When they're sitting on the sofa and Elsa Maxwell is telling her, this is the advice my father gave me. Let me tell you what my father told me when I was your age. He said, Elsa, I have nothing to leave you except a philosophy of living. But if you stick to that... Nothing can keep you back. You haven't any of the things a girl needs to ensure success. 
Beauty, background, money. You're nothing much to look at. You never will be. There are too many Maxwells in the world already, so you haven't a name. You will never inherit anything from me, so you have no money. Your only chance is to invent your own rules of life. He told me, first of all, never to be afraid. Especially, never to be afraid of what they say or what they think. Because they is non-existent. A ghost in the mind. <laughs> I know. Next, he warned me to beware of owning inanimate objects. Because eventually, they own you. Most people, he said, spend the first part of their lives acquiring things. And the last part of their lives getting rid of them. So they can die in peace. <laughs> That's true. And last, he said, take the light things seriously and the serious things lightly. With a great legacy, Marcia, it works. It worked for me. I don't see why it shouldn't work for you. Oh, thank you, Miss Maxwell. Your friends in Syracuse must be getting a boot out of what's happening to you. All of them. Yes, I imagine there has been some astonishment. Good. That he's kicking himself black and blue. So much the better. They're such great pieces. They're just such great words of advice, I thought. We need to write that down somewhere and just have that available for <laughs> yeah. people that are, that are, you know, looking at their life going, gosh, I don't know which direction to go now. It's, it feels very genuine. And I, th- I think that's one of the things that I appreciate about it. This this film in general is that everyone seems pretty genuine. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Maybe it's just a matter of um, we've seen characters like this and they've turned into stereotypes. <laughs> and maybe, but are you thinking of head over heels? <laughs> <laughs> but it's been done so for so, for so long mm-hmm. that you think, yeah, yeah, okay, I, I can I can picture someone being like this, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All her neighbors and oh, first of all, the hotel. That's a nice room for what two fifty a day, twelve dollars for the week. Twelve a week, yeah. Well, so the history of these hotels is really interesting. That first one that I mentioned, the one that opened in nineteen oh three, it started as a hotel. At this time, women could not stay at a hotel without a man. You couldn't just go check into a hotel, um, and so it was opened specifically to cater to upper crust women. It was open specifically for women who had means and money, already were self-supporting, um, you know, had a handles on their lives, but didn't have the ability to go anywhere unless that actually before these hotels, there were homes for women. So they were more like um, you had like den mothers kind of there. It was more like a dormitory. And a lot of them were hosted by um, religious facilities or um well, mostly by religious facilities, actually. And so they had really strict curfews. They didn't have any cooking or washing in them. So to open this hotel and to have full-service hotel amenities, it was staffed by women almost entirely. Um, They had a nail salon. They had a hair salon. They had a tailor. And they had, you actually, if you were a self-supporting woman, you could go here and you could live a full, enriched life and go and interact with people and work and then come home to yeah a pretty luxurious it's not quite an apartment you don't have actual cooking facilities in there or laundry but you could send your clothes out to have them cleaned there were restaurants all over and it was a much more viable way to enjoy the increased income that they couldn't have done living at home or they couldn't have they couldn't have gone and stayed in a regular hotel and done it so it is, yeah, it's definitely an upscale place. It has, you know, bellhops and it has front phone lines and it has multiple receptionists and it has sweeping ceilings and nice lounges. And it's, uh, I, I'm really sad they don't still have these. I'd love to go visit one. <laughs> I'd love to go stay in one of these. Me too. Well, you couldn't. <laughs> 
I could hang out in the lobby. There you go. You could, and that's as far as you could get in this hotel. Yep. No, no further, <laughs> no further than the outside of the elevator doors. Exactly. And that's a. Uh, I love the scene uh, where it's a. Uh, it's night. Everyone's going out for the dates. The the elevator doors part, and there's all the men down in the tuxedo, and everyone waiting for their dates as they come out yeah. the elevator. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if they didn't steal that scene for the movie, uh, the The Bachelor with Chris O'Dowd and Renee Zellweger, mm. and the the. It, the doors part, the women walk out, and all the men are like, oh, there she is, there she is, right? Yep. We don't do that yeah, anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's literally, you feel like you're at the airport waiting for people to get off the, you know, off the plane, coming into the terminal kind of thing. Yeah. That's exactly how it feels Anticipation. like. Anticipation. We don't have mm-hmm. that anymore. No. So we do meet our male star, Jeff Buchanan. I'm not sure how I feel about Jeff in this film. I would love to see Jeff as a cowboy, which is a lot of what he did. Yes, no, absolutely. He's got a great, uh, you know, chiseled jaw and a great voice. He has a fantastic voice. I I didn't notice. Really? Oh, I I thought his voice was really good. I didn't. I I was a little more smitten with John Halliday, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but it, and I thought, we'll get there, Lydia. We'll get there. But I did. I know. I know. But I did really appreciate a couple of things um, about Jeff. One thing is, when I read the synopsis for this film, I don't usually read a synopsis before I watch things. I like to just launch into them. I don't watch trailers anymore. I quit watching trailers like 15 years ago because they give away everything. So I don't read synopses either. Um, But I did on this one for some reason, and I went into it expecting to really be irritated (laughs) by this character. And then what happened was... In this initial interlude where he and Marsha meet to go to dinner and they're talking, and I'm expecting him, because I've read the synopsis, to dump her. Nice. Well, come on, Marsha. I'm waiting. Well, to tell you the honest truth, Jeff, I, I didn't know how much I loved you until you left. I was a little fool not to marry you right then, when you wanted me most. I can't tell you how awful it was to see my family looking so... Well, so pleased and contented because they'd done this to us. And then as time went on, and I missed you more and more. I realized what a spineless little coward I'd been. And then Monday, somehow or other, the lid blew off, and I just couldn't stand it any longer. So I told them they could take it or leave it. I was coming to you. So, here I am, Jeff. I can see your loved ones when you toss heaven in their laps. What about Aunt Hattie? Did she rear and snort? Well, that happened was very pleasant. Oh, but they'll get over it, darling. They're going to be proud of you yet. I don't know. Maybe. I've been working hard. There's a lot of architects in this town. Competition is pretty hot. I guess I should have sent you a wire. Oh, but I didn't wait for anything. I just came. Hello there, Jeff. Well, good evening. Marcia, this is Mr. Van Ellis. Miss Bromley. How do you do, Miss Bromley? I didn't mean to interrupt your dinner, but I I told the Hoffers I'd try and get in touch with you. They're giving a party Sunday night, and they want all you good-looking young bachelors to come around and liven it up a bit. Well, thanks. I'll give you a ring and let you know. Just try and make it, Jeff. Good evening, Miss Bromley. That was James Van Ellis. Oh, yes, I've heard of him. He seemed very friendly. You see, Marcia, this, this business of being an architect isn't... Well, it isn't just drawing a lot of plans the way I thought it was, not in New York. It, it's a matter of contacts and going places and meeting people. 
right now when I'm trying to get a foothold, it's it's important that I'm not tied up in any way. Mr. Craig has been grand to me. He's given me every kind of a chance. Later on, when I've established myself, I won't have to give a hoop about contacts or that sort of thing. But it's it's all good experience for you, isn't it, Jeff? I mean, you like it. Oh, yes. I've met some very interesting people. It's fresh and stimulating. Yes, I, I can see that. I, I think I'll have another Bacardi. Waiter. And he doesn't. He never actually dumps her. She told him no when he proposed before this movie started. <laughs> and then um, and then when he's explaining to her, well, things are harder, you know, I, I have to be unattached. But he never actually says, so I don't think it's like, he never, she is the one that takes the steps to, oh, he needs to be free to make connections. He's not going to be interested anymore. I need to give it up. He doesn't directly take that step and definitely I'm not saying the message isn't there at all he's like kind of doing that hinting thing where you're trying to get a person to break up with you but you don't want to break up with them but he doesn't say you know he never looks at her and says I don't love you anymore I don't care about you anymore you know you just need to go back home which is what I expected to happen well I couldn't figure out if was he doing that because he does still care for her and but he was just thinking he needed he was kind of being pressured into being the unattached and you know the the socialite whatever or was it just cuz he was a bit of a coward I think both I think part of it probably if we want to dig into this and this is this is the podcast where we pick apart the psychology of characters on the screen <laughs> welcome <laughs> I think partly if you want to really dig into it he's had his heart broken you know and and you know I've already said he's not my favorite character in this movie but I, genuinely I think he's had his heart broken he said hey I'm going away I'm going to New York I'm gonna make it big come with me and she said no I'm not gonna do it and you know so he thought I'm gonna take my girl we're gonna go to New York I'm gonna provide for her I'm gonna have a great career I'm gonna come home at night and have a beautiful wife and he didn't have that and so when she shows up and we don't know how long it's been Maybe it's been six months. I'm guessing it hasn't. It's, I think it's been a year. I'm it's actually it's said been, in the film. Yeah, okay. So it's been a little time. It's not like it was two weeks ago. And mm-hmm. so he's had time to adjust to what the expectations are here. And and I think, yeah, a little bit of it, he's just trying to say, hey, things are different than I thought they were going to be. And a little bit of it, he's saying, I'm not sure I can make things work the way I originally thought that I could. And but but ultimately, having rewatched it, you know, having watched it twice, I never felt like he was just saying, patting her on the head and saying, oh, tough breaks, kid. Good luck. You know? Yeah. But was he dating someone else? I couldn't figure out. I think so. I think who was the woman? Was she just a friend? Because I couldn't tell either. She's the daughter of his boss. Was that? The- yes. Oh, that w- that was Melinda. Yes, Melinda okay, Craig okay. is the socialite that he's being seen with. So he is. I don't. They don't seem to me to be dating. Their conversations tell me they're not. Well, exactly. See, in the beginning when she comes in, I got the feeling that this was the girlfriend or someone, but then later on, 
after Marsha dumps him, mm-hmm. he's confiding in Melinda, mm-hmm. you know, all this stuff. And oh, she just looks like, and she looks so lost and I felt so bad and all this blah, blah. It's like, okay, that's not the type of thing you would tell your current girlfriend that your ex-girlfriend, exactly. you know. Yeah. So yeah, I couldn't really figure out their relationship together. If they were just uh, acquaintances, they were friends. I obviously, I you know, they must uh, work or they certainly spend in the same circle yeah. together. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, th- my my take on it is she's the boss's daughter, and probably he started there, and he was the the fresh, young, good looking face, and she said, "Hey, you can take me out to to get drinks one night," and he was like, oh, it's the boss's daughter. I got to do whatever she wants. And then probably they seem like they've hit it off when he first, when we first meet her and he's got lunch plans with her already. And he hangs up the phone with Marsha having made dinner plans with her. And he says, oh, that was an old friend from back, you know, from back at in Syracuse. And she says, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I know. And he used to dip her pigtails in the inkwells. Come on, let's go to lunch. I've already heard it all. You know, there's not any, oh, really? Well, I hope she's not going to have you for dinner tonight. It's, there's none of that. So I, uh, and then, you know, as you said later, he's telling her, oh, I feel like a heel for breaking it off with this girl. And she at no point is saying, you know, she's saying, oh, well, it'll give her a lure. She'll be okay. But she's not saying, hey, don't worry about her. You've got me. And I think this is a woman who is, she's got anything. She's got everything she needs. She's not looking for Jeff to be her ticket to anything. And I think I, they just strike me as having, you know, they've just hit it off. I explained that for way too long. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. I feel strongly well, I, it's about just, it. It's <laughs> just, yeah, I... I just couldn't, and maybe it's the kind of the cynic in me, is that I couldn't figure out if Jeff, throughout this film, really was like seeing the error of his ways after, you know, when she broke it off and he realized that uh, he was the heel and, you know, he, he, he wants to try to make things right. Or was it a matter of, well, now I can't have her, but now I want her. Well, so that's an interesting question. So let, let's look at his actions that he takes. She says, hey, I'm in town. He says, can't, ha- can't have lunch with you. Let's have dinner. If it, you know, he could have broken his lunch date with the other girl. So he, but at this point he doesn't, she hasn't told him, I've changed my mind. I love you. I want to marry you. Right. He's, so he's, he's going, I don't really know why she's in town, but I'm interested to see what's going on. And then at dinner, she says, oh, I've completely changed my mind. Everything's different. And I took the big leap and I'm here. And he says, you know, I'm still trying to build my career, career, and it's not like I expected it to be. And then she immediately goes to, oh, I get it. Okay. And so when he says, hey, wouldn't you like to have lunch tomorrow or something? She says, no, don't bother. And he's like, wait, wait a minute. And she gets out of the car. The car door gets slammed in his face and he's driven away. Well, he's still saying, wait a minute. Like, I'm not done with this conversation. Then he sends her flowers, you know, and it says, and granted, he's a guy. OK, he's not going to write her Shakespeare. Yes, I under, I totally get the irony in that statement, but <laughs> the oxymoron in that statement or the, whatever, you know what I'm saying. And then after that, you know, he's saying, I just, I feel really bad about it. And then she's still, and then she, he turns around and she's still in town. And he's, I think from that point, he's constantly trying to make that reconnection. I don't think he's like just stops because she because he he does call her a few more times. She says, no, I won't talk to him. Or she says, oh, he calls one time and says, 
oh, I think actually the next day he calls and says, hey, I'd like to take you out to dinner. And she says, no, I've washed my hair. I can't go anywhere. And then she goes out with somebody else. So I see him continually trying to at least rebuild that contact and her continually pushing him away over and over. And that was another point I wanted to bring up is she's not exactly playing the better person through this film when it came when it comes to uh to jeff i think there there is moments where it really feels like she's sort of rubbing his nose in it yeah i think i think that's likely she's not i don't think at any point she's well that's not true there is one point she's she goes to dinner with the um gates with the the cigarette guy what's new steve well hello ben Nothing newer than the new Cambridge girl. There she sits. You don't say. Miss Bromley, this is Ben Ritchie. How do you do? I hope you'll never read any of that syndicated tripe he dishes out. (laughs) (laughs) Say, they keep getting better and better. Where did you find this lovely? She walked into my office straight from Syracuse. No fooling. Your first modeling job? Yes. And you land around the top rung. Thanks to Mr. Gates. Hey, Ben. Yeah. I'll uh, see you later. The only one of his kind still alive. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Marcia. Your hair looks very nice. Thank you so much, Jeff. Who's the gentleman? You two certainly comes your lot in a few words. We'll order later. What's the matter? Lost your appetite? How do you do it, boy? Do what? The new Cambridge girl's only been in town a day, and you know her. You get around fast. You mean Marsha Bromley? She's modeling? She ain't sewing. Oh, that's impossible. <laughs> Not when Stephen Gates is interested in the girl. Careful, Ben. She used to ride on his scooter. <laughs> now, look here. I'll see you later. <laughs> the thunder and lightning in your eyes. Don't you look handsome. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there. that's the one point where I feel like she is really rubbing it in his face. Uh, you know, the first time she sees him... She's out with somebody else and isn't expecting to see him. And if he's taken, you know, he's kind of shocked. And then, yeah, it, yeah, I don't think to say she's playing the better person. She is not. It, I don't think any, I don't think either of them in this movie are playing the typical game that you see in most Hollywood films. We're, you're not seeing the she's trying to make him jealous. He's trying to make her jealous back and forth, you know, nitpicking like we get now, which is I'm going to move on. <laughs> I'm just going to move on from that statement. You, and you're not seeing the one person is just madly in love with the other and desperately trying to get them, but the other person really doesn't care about them and is ignoring them. I think kind of you're almost seeing a flip in their situations. He asks her to marry him. She says no. And so he goes and builds a life. And then she comes and says, hey, I want to marry you. And he says, well, I don't think I'm there right now. And so she goes and tries to build a life. And then mm-hmm. at the end, you know, maybe their lives work out. Maybe they don't. Yeah. And the situation really gets reversed because she's built this life. And when he's trying to like, no, let's let's forget all this. Let's let's run off and, and be together. She's like, no, I've got a life now. I've got things. I've 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 become a new person, mm-hmm. which is actually a scene I really like. Mm-hmm. You know, this is 1939 and this is a woman going, no. I think it's really, I, I think this is where we really see that this was written by a really sharp, um, well-spoken woman uh, mm-hmm. and, and by 
by another woman also and also a man. She, you know, was co-written was co-written, co-written. It was co-written. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hi. <laughs> it was co-written by several people, but obviously we get to see Elsa Maxwell in this and see a little bit of her personality. And I think that you have to attribute the strength of some of these characters. Even there's a, a character, she's a floor mate with them. I can't think what her name is. Um, maybe, oh, it's Emmeline. That's who it is. And she's the girl that can never get a date. And she ends up hiring oh, yeah. an escort. And yeah. even that character, they, they, none of them feel like they're not real people. Like you said earlier, mm-hmm. they all feel very genuine. And I think that there was a lot of, I think that what we're seeing in this movie that we're not used to seeing in movies of this era is a strong female take on what women are really like. I think you're not seeing the damsel in distress. You know, you used a phrase before we started uh, recording. You said something about none of the women in another movie having agency. And in this movie, every woman is her own person. None of them are rushing. Even the woman that is madly in love with what, with a guy, Jimmy, who we never meet, <laughs> even she is still, she's making the decision, hey, I'm not going to go on dates with rich guys. I'm in love with somebody else. And that's just who she is. I, I like that so much about this movie. I like that there are, I can't think of a single villain in this movie. This is a movie with no villains. You have interpersonal conflict, but you don't have one person who's just straight up evil. Even the person that makes you know, what would typically be considered an evil action uh, or takes an evil action when she's explaining why she does what she does, man, your heart is with her. You're going, I understand why this woman would take such a desperate action. She is at a, you know, at a certain point in her life where, you know, gosh, maybe it's not the right action to take, but she is doing this out of intense, sincere passion and what she believes is real love. And um, it, it's I, I love that she's not evil. She's not just, you know, the skulking around the corners or the, you know, the femme fatale. They all feel like they're really real and really genuine people. And we have to talk about John Halliday. <laughs> yes, we can finally talk about John Thank Halliday you. for you. Who is, of course, Melinda Craig's father, John Craig, who is also Jeff's boss, so obviously a much older man. Mm-hmm. And when he meets... Marsha, who is, we're going to pretend, uh, early 20s model. Yes. <laughs> he is immediately smitten with her, immediately, and crosses the room to and stands very meaningfully waiting for Jeff to introduce him to this beautiful woman. Um, and they go out a couple of times. He invites her over for dinner with his daughter and Jeff, and they have dinner, presumably. They look at his, his uh, weapons. God. <laughs> society damn you <laughs> and his and his maori weapons sorry christina for pronouncing it so poorly but they he's looking at you know they're looking at actual archaeological pieces and um and we only really see them together a couple of times but both times you get the feeling that here's this much older man he knows he's a much older man he's not he's not 
lying to himself saying, oh, it's just a few years difference. And they yeah. even have a conversation where he's telling her, you need to be careful about older men like me. And she says, oh, I know. Aren't you afraid? Should I be? Definitely. Of what? Of me. <laughs> Why should I be afraid of you? Because I'm older and wiser. I knew a 12-year-old girl who was very wise. It wasn't you by any chance. Oh, no. It was my Aunt Agatha. Oh. I think you'd better have a liqueur. Now, tell me about Aunt Agatha. What happened to her? She didn't come to New York. Oh, I see. Just wore out her wisdom in Syracuse. Yes. Mm -hmm. Or perhaps you should have brought Aunt Agatha with you. Men my age are dangerous, you know. I know. Oh. Then Auntie told you things before you came to New York. You'd be surprised. Then you should be afraid of me. Sorry, I'm not. Well, don't you rely too much on Auntie. Older men are dynamite with nice little girls like you. I thought that was only in books. Oh, no, no, no. Don't you believe it? First of all, a charming dinner. Then coffee and liqueurs. Then a little banter back and forth until you're disarmed and friendly. How can I warn you against men like me when you're practically in my arms? <laughs> oh, we are diabolically clever, Marcia. First, we ask you if you've ever been in love. Were you? Now, that's beside the point. I asked you first. <laughs> then we bring you little gifts. Flowers at first. Diamonds later. Or we offer you a car. An apartment, perhaps overlooking the Hudson. By the way, I designed the cliff house uh, overlooking the Hudson. Really? Oh, yes. Oh, so that's why Antagatha suggested the Sherrington Hotel. And he says, you know, and he's saying, well, this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And she says, uh-huh, I know. And he stops and he, he looks at her and he scoots away a little bit like, oh, whoa, this is a different kind of girl that I've dealt with before. She's not throwing herself at him and she's not uh, encouraging him to be inappropriate. She's just there enjoying the situation. And... You know, and, he, and he's not, he doesn't come across as the lecherous old man either. There's, I love the depth of these characters in this movie. Or rather the fact that they, well, they just don't feel two-dimensional. I suppose that's depth. <laughs> I suppose that's the definition of depth. So, yeah, no, his his character, I think, and I, even when Jeff comes and confronts him and says, you know, you you have to get away from Marsha. I love his, the progression of his logic. He says, well, what's it to you? And he says, well, I'm in love with her. That's what it is. And he goes, oh, really? Okay, well, that's interesting. Is she in love with you? And you see Jeff kind of take a little step back and he says, well, not anymore. And he's like, it's none of your business then. She's a grown woman. I'm a grown man. And and he's not saying, I love that he doesn't say, they don't get in each other's, he doesn't get back in Jeff's face and fight with him. There's no fight scene in this. You no. know, I, I love that. He doesn't, and he doesn't fire Jeff, you know, everything that falls out after that is Jeff's decision. And, yeah. and, and it's not that he is a shining example of morality per se, but this is a man who is, he's not a, he's not a lecherous old coot. He's just, he pursues beautiful young women. And if they're open to his advances, he, 
he enjoys that basically. Yeah, you, you definitely get the impression that if Marsha said, "I appreciate, you know, I enjoy spending time with you, but I'm not interested in a romantic relationship with you," he would be, "Well, that's disappointing, but I understand." Yeah, let and, me call my car for you. Thank you so much for dinner. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Why don't people do that anymore? Darn it! <laughs> no, no, he is, he does come across as a true gentleman yeah. through and through. Yep, yeah, and he is. I mean, he's. It's funny. He reminds me of like almost a classical gentleman in the sense that, you know, men would marry and then they would have their mistresses on the side. Now he's widowed. And so he's not breaking anybody's heart. His daughter clearly knows what goes on in his life. His grown daughter clearly Mm -hmm. knows what goes on in his life. There are, there's a moment where he goes to, I think he goes to Vogue to visit uh, Marsha and goes in and he gives the receptionist a gift and she knows who he is and says, oh, thank you so much, Mr. Craig. And then she says, Barbara's not here. And he says, oh, or Barbara's left already. Miss Hunter has left. And he says, oh, well, will you tell Miss Bromley I'm here? <laughs> and she's like, of <laughs> course. So this is not a new thing for him. He's been doing no. this for a very long time. And uh, and I think, you know, it, and he has, he believes he's done it without hurting anybody. Mm-hmm. And I like him. <laughs> when Barbara comes in and, and, and confronts him and uh, Marsha, he tells her, like, look, we had an understanding in the beginning that, you know, when this is going to be over, we're all each going to go our separate ways. We'll be adults it's, that's about That's the it. way these things work. Mm-hmm. So in his eyes, anyway, uh, he's not expecting anyone to fall in love with him. Mm-hmm. And then even if they are, we set the rules from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And he thinks there's a natural progression. You you become enamored with one another, you enjoy your time together, and then you fall out of of romance. You fall out of enjoyment with that person. He's completely honest about... He knows exactly the type of person he is, mm-hmm. and he's completely honest about and it. And he believes he knows who everybody else is. Right. I'm, I'm going to be attracted to the, the new young thing, and then eventually I'm not, and I'm going to be attracted to the next young thing, and I'm just going to move on. And he's com- very honest and upfront about it. I wish we saw more movies with the number of characters in this film um, that are are just so interesting to see. This movie, uh, I saw it compared with another movie, The Women. Uh, I've seen a a remake, a not-too-late remake of that called... Uh, the opposite sex. It had June Allison in it, and great movie. Really, uh, really enjoyable movie. When I was younger, I loved it. When I was about sixteen, seventeen, I rewatched it recently. It doesn't hold up quite as well as I thought it would. <laughs> but a lot of the characters in it are that kind of. There's the evil character, you know. Mm-hmm. There's the character that Crystal, you know, and she's trying to get the rich. She actively chooses to break up a marriage so she can marry a rich man, and you don't have a person like that in this. You don't have a person in this that's like, what do they call it now? Too stupid to live. <laughs> mm-hmm. You don't have like the character that's just so clueless that they don't, that they're just constantly getting blindsided by life. I really liked that about Marsha. She's not a bimbo. She's not an idiot. She's an intelligent woman. She is capable of learning. She takes advice from other people and she explores her options to see what she wants her life to be like. And I feel like most of the people in this are like that. And that makes me think I would have been really good friends with Elsa Maxwell. I think she and I would have just clicked. Because <laughs> if, if these are the kinds of characters she writes, they're, they're real people. They're very interesting. They remind me a lot of what you would see in an Austen novel. 
you know, where the people are, they're, they're people and their motives are, are, they have motives for all of their actions. They're not just reacting without thought. Most of them. <laughs> I, I got a kick out of the scene with Elsa. She's down on the, in the lobby on one of the couches with a couple of the other women. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's, uh, is it Eileen? That's the, uh, the, the model that's uh, turning to stage. Yes. She's, she's going to be in the chorus. Yes. And there's another woman sitting there with, with uh, Elsa and they're talking about Eileen and talk about her going out with all these men, these rich men yes. and this and that and everything. And the one woman who um, gave, you know, five years of her life or whatever to some man and then yet, you know, left up to the curb or something. Yes. You know, so it was a divorced woman living in the hotel. And she's like, oh, I know the type of woman she is. My, my house was broken up by a woman mm-hmm. like that. And Elsa's like, just like, oh, if we're going down this road, I'm out. Yeah, she not, gets up I don't want to hear the sob story again. I'm going. <laughs> yeah. Look, we've heard it. Okay. You're unhappy. Change your life. That sounds a little too familiar. <laughs> That's something I would say. That's something I have said. But yeah, I like that. I like it makes sense to me that the characters she's writing are, are people. I mean, we all write. Anybody who writes, writes people that are like they are, right? And so mm-hmm. I think it's interesting. At least that's my opinion <laughs> as, a, as a dabbler. Um, I, I like the characters she writes. They've got depth and they've got purpose. I think the closest you get to anything kind of villainous, and I only mentioned this because it was a fun story, just personal here. My, my wife was actually sitting there watching some of the film with me as I was uh, reviewing it the second time around. And there's a scene where Barbara confronts uh, Marsha in the uh, yes. in the in the apartment, mm-hmm. and she tells her like, "Look, I put a lot of time in on on uh, on Craig. I'm not going to just sit here and let you ruin it all for me." Mm-hmm. And then my, my wife kind of just turns to me and goes, "Wow." <laughs> 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 I mean, <laughs> it's it's interesting. So is I don't think that she's I don't think she's being evil there, or you know, I think no that- you. Well, you understand her when you realize what her motivation is later. That yeah. scene, yeah, that scene right there just makes it sound like makes it sound like she's a bit of a gold digger. Yes. Oh, yeah. I put a lot of time in with this rich dude, and I expect to get paid out. And yes. later we find out that's not her motive. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, it certainly sounds like it in the moment. Oh, I will be. I will admit that uh, I actually find Marsha a little. I don't know about in in, in that scene. Because, well, and maybe she doesn't understand that either. Maybe she gets the same impression that you, that we, the audience, get that. Oh, this is just a, that she's just a gold digger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, she and she doesn't say specifically any. You know, she doesn't cast aspersions. Um, but she does. No. Later on, she says, "Oh, if I'd realized that Barbara really loved Craig, I would have behaved differently." She does right. say, "I didn't realize she really was in love with him." You know. Yeah, that does make sense because I was thinking, well, she is actually a little bit, you know, here's a woman that is like saying how much she cares for, like, you know, for a person. And she goes, oh, well, why why don't, and Marcia says, well, why don't we just let nature figure things out? Mm -hmm. Like, well, geez, you know, someone likes somebody and you're going to still get in the way. But no, you're, you're, you're right. Now that I think back on it. Barbara doesn't really come across as I care about this no, person. No, and it yeah. feels like if she, I, I mean, gosh, we're speculating, right? We're just purely mm-hmm. speculating. But if she had come out and said, listen, you don't understand. I actually love this man. And he, I know you're just a toy to him, but I really love him. I really yeah. care about him. And I would be really appreciative if you would break it off with him. 
because yeah, you I think you Marcia just would. See him. Yeah, she, I think she if she'd said you just see him as a golden ticket, but I actually have feelings for him. Yeah, I expect Marcia. I think that's the common thread through most of these people is that you feel like yeah, if they've they're not intentionally going in and wrecking homes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I do like the fact that Marcia generally I don't think she sees Craig as just a golden ticket or anything either. I think she genuinely enjoys spending time with I him. I agree. There's so there is so much chemistry <laughs> between Marsha really and is. Craig that it, it's it's almost too bad. I feel like you can't root for Jeff because there's just not enough chemistry there to overshadow between Marsha and Craig, which is really mm-hmm. funny because he is literally old enough to be her father, probably maybe almost old enough to be her grandfather. There's 40 years between There's a between lot. Them. Of, yeah, there's a lot. And we did we did the math on him, too. He was 55. Was he? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and who knows what the character ages are supposed to be. But... Um, it, <laughs> worth mentioning, just as a side, uh, John Halliday plays uh, the father in the Philadelphia story. He plays Catherine Hepburn's father in the Philadelphia story. He's delightful in that movie as well. And uh, I recognized him, but I couldn't think from what. So I was so happy to see that's who he is. And I I think I would go back and watch any movie with him in it. I just think he's he just seems like his characters just seem warm and interesting and not boring (laughs) and joyful yeah yeah i mean he truly you you get the impression he is truly enjoying his time he spends with marcia when he's describing and and showing you know yeah some ancient weapon some knife or Mm -hmm. club or whatever and and she's actually showing an interest Mm -hmm. there's like a glean in his eye like really oh (laughs) yeah oh you're gonna make up a story to go with it i'm gonna go with that heck yeah yes (laughs) when he sends her flowers later and references back to it yeah i think so Mm -hmm. so yeah it's tough for me to root for jeff because he he doesn't feel enough like he's willing to let Marsha become a person Mm-hmm. You know, he's as soon as she wants to become a person, then he starts. I don't know that he feels threatened, but he realizes that what he had a hold on is slipping and he starts to like panic, really. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's actually the, the sad part is if you think about what happens the year in, in, in the year after this film, I, I, I feel like it's just, mm-hmm. oh, Jeff and Marsha gets married and Marcia stays at home and, you know, never returns the modeling. Yeah. She, he's got this incredibly beautiful wife that eventually begins to drink and feels depressed because she could have made something with her life. Yes. <laughs> it's really, oh. So and I, maybe, maybe she would have married a John Craig someday. Or maybe he would have found a younger model, you know. Uh, but it does seem like, and, and you know, but the, and that and that is, it's really funny. That is such a feminist perspective. <laughs> Literally, is a feminist perspective, right? That's one of the things. Is back in this time period, if a woman wasn't happy just being at home, married and barefoot, people were literally prescribing her antidepressants or Valium, you know, and saying, what's wrong with you? You've got the white picket fence. You've got the kids and the husband in the house. Why wouldn't you be happy? And it took, you know, another 30, 40 years for people then to go, hey, maybe that's not really enough to make women happy. So it's, it is, and so for us to look at this and go, 
oh, I don't see this as, you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's a very modern perspective. We're almost 100 years on. Uh, I guess we're not quite that far. We're 80 years on from this. And um, things have changed a lot. So for for audiences of this era, this would have been a very satisfying ending. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, absolutely. So I think, you know, this is a script ahead of its time, with the exception of the ending. It also feels a little rust. It's like, yes. and this happened, and our two main leads are together. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, wow. they ran out of film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen what happened to the other people. And you mentioned that earlier. You said you'd like to have seen a movie dedicated to just the women that live in this, you know, the other women living in this hotel. And I think that would have been entertaining as well. I'd love to know. I want to know what happens with Emmeline. Does she end up, do she and her escort end up falling in love? Or does she go out <laughs> and because she's out dancing with a man, another man notices her? Like, you know, she's yeah. just that. Yeah, sweet. what happens at the Pelican Room when they go on yes. their date? You know, what happens there? I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> does does Barbara flee the country? Or does, does, <laughs> does Craig, does she go back to Craig? Or does Craig go find her and say, you know, Barbara... I understand now. <laughs> yeah. Or, uh, yeah, uh, what happens to Eileen and her career in the chorus? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the chorus yeah. girl. Does she know. make it? Uh, yeah. yeah, I want to know everything about these women, and you don't get any closure with any no. of them. No, unfortunately. So, so it Do is... we ever get to meet Jimmy? <laughs> <laughs> is Jimmy a good guy? <laughs> yeah. Does uh, Who's the other one? Is it? Uh, there's another one that's talking about, all he ever talks about is Bach and Beethoven. Is that Jimmy or is that somebody else? No, that's somebody, somebody else. else. I forget. I, I forget which girl. Yeah, that was. I do yeah. too. But I'd love to know what does she ever? Does she develop a love for classical music? <laughs> that's a great conversation too. It's like, well, why don't you learn something about Bach and those <laughs> other guys? Two other two guys. <laughs> I actually, when when I first was watching it, I was a little bit distracted during that scene, and I thought they were talking about baseball players. <laughs> and so when I went back the second time, I was like, oh, it's classical music. That's hilarious. It's composers. Yeah, yeah he's so good. he's gonna get bored i just sit there and nod like an idiot <laughs> well honey if he's talking about bach and beethoven he probably doesn't care if you know who they are or not <laughs> i just got to tell you that's pretty funny i it, i think it was it was an interesting story there's some fun history in this uh surrounding this establishment i think uh i think it's interesting this was probably a really big step for women to be able to find lives away from marriage and children um, mm-hmm. I think this was probably a huge step toward that. And we probably don't appreciate that <laughs> because we don't know about it very much. Right. Right. But um, gosh, yeah, this is I think this is a fun movie. I think this is I think this is a movie that I wouldn't mind going back and watching a few more times and just picking apart some nuances. Um, I'd love to maybe go back and pick apart Jeff and Melinda and see if I feel like, oh, maybe maybe Christopher was right. Maybe there is a little spark <laughs> there. I'm pretty confident with my opinion, but I'm curious. So, yeah. It is a, it is a fun and enjoyable film. I, I was actually kind of surprised how much I enjoyed sitting down and watching this. Mm-hmm. Even, I mean, I watched it the first time over the weekend and then just a, a day or two before we record. And I, I you sit there... I. I enjoy watching this film mm-hmm. at the, from beginning to end because there are just some really fun and creative characters. There's some great little lines. There's some great moments. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, you just walk away with it going, 
That's a good movie. Yeah. Even from the very beginning, it starts off with the operator giving each room a call, giving them their wake-up calls, and you get to see the reactions to each person. Now, you don't know who they are. Going back and watching that the second time is a lot of fun. You recognize who's who, and you go, yep, that's her personality. Yep, that's her personality. Yep. There's Emmeline doing her little you know, jumping jacks or whatever in the morning. Yep. <laughs> She's the one doing everything right. Can't figure out why she can't find a man. Yep. <laughs> yep. 7.30. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think this whole movie from beginning beginning to climax, for sure, is really enjoyable. And yep. in the end, I'm not angry about the end. Um, it's of its time. It's of its, it's time. It's, it's how this movie was going to end. No matter what happened, <laughs> well, this is how the movie was going to end. If it hadn't end. ended this way, it would be film noir. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it has to end this way or it's a completely different category. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But we probably should rate it. Yeah, we should put some ratings on this one. Um I think the first time I watched it, I was probably going to give it a solid three. The second time I watched it, I actually found myself enjoying it even more than I, than the first time. I, I think I'd be willing to push it up to a four. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think there's enough to this film. It's uh, just everything we've already, we've already said. It's a much more intelligent film than I was expecting. Mm-hmm. And you would probably expect in a lot of films that you sit down to of the era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I definitely think it's worth a four. Yeah, I agree with you. I think we almost never rate things the same unless they're horrible. <laughs> yeah, I think true. when we rate the same, it's either they're really excellent or they're really awful. And in this case, I you know it's funny. Like I don't think you can. I don't think you can quite go to a five with it. Um, no, no. Unfortunately, the quality. I wanted to mention the quality of what's yeah. out there and I watched two different versions or I tried to watch two different versions and there are some moments in it where you're looking there are shots of and it's really weird it seems to only happen when you're seeing Marsha so for some reason the shots of Linda Darnell there are moments where she's got like some kind of glint in her eye and it makes her eyes look like crazy eyes <laughs> like <laughs> tiny pupil and giant white you know the whites are and and I think it's just something to do with the the quality of the film uh it and it's extremely distracting uh because it it's like here's this girl with this mellifluous voice she has a sob to her voice that i've never heard i've heard the term a sob to her voice and never understood what it meant until i heard this woman talking in this movie and then i understood and and she does it it when she first is talking to jeff She's got this excited kind of sob to her voice. And then she kind of grows out of it. It's really interesting. When she's being like overly enthusiastic, it's it's like grating. And then anyway, uh, but there's, uh, you know, there's a little rough quality to the sound of it. Those things aren't, you know, really rating, aren't going to determine the rating per se, unless it's just awful cinematography. In this case, I think it's just solid filming. And I think that the acting is is good. I think they did. I think the casting is excellent. I think the direction is very good. And I think the writing is very, very good. And so, yeah, I have to go with you on, on a four stars on this. I wish, uh, I would love to see some more Elsa Maxwell writing. Um, I doubt, I just, looking through the list of what she wrote, I doubt that you're going to get anything else this really, like, kind of dramatic and intense um 
that there are just a couple of shorts in there. I think she wrote, uh, she co-wrote four other films and none of them, three of them look like they're kind of musical flings. And the one that she wrote directly after this, so the, the, the write-up for it is definitely not gonna <laughs> not gonna challenge this one's rating at all so so this is probably the best one that we're gonna see from her but um but yeah I, I which is too bad I really now I'm curious to go and see like what songs she wrote see if I can dig up any articles by her because I think she seems like an interesting character an interesting person yep absolutely yeah the quality of the film just real quick uh the picture, there's not much I could I could do with. It's the picture is actually not awful. It's the sound that I really have a hard time mm. with this film. The one I put up on our YouTube page, I did go and try to like drop a little bit of that background fuzz. I think it was, was better than the other one I watched, but marginally. Yeah, yeah. and it's still. I mean, it's it's damaged audio, mm-hmm. unfortunately, and there's really no way to completely save it. Yes, but there yeah. was there was just a throughout the entire film, just a, a hum and a fuzz through the entire thing, and I went and was able to drop a little bit of that out, mm-hmm. and it, it, that may in itself kind of damage some of the rest of the audio and some of the. Some of the lines may be a little difficult to actually make out. Yeah, but I caught that on the other version that I watched, too. There were the specific lines I had difficulty hearing. I I had a hard time hearing on the other version, too. Um, I have to I have to correct what I just said. The movies I was looking at, she she acted in. Elsa Maxwell did not write. This is her only writing credit. Okay, All right. uh, Just to just to clean that up for anybody listening. Sure. As far as I don't know where you saw it, I don't know if you just saw two different versions on YouTube, because as far as I can tell, this isn't streaming on yeah. any service that I could find. That's what I found. I just found another version on YouTube as well. Right. Okay. So, um, yeah, this is definitely one of those films where I'm sorry there isn't more care into yeah. preserving this one. Yeah. This would be a really nice one to see, you know. The uh, Criterion Collections. Yes. Yeah, I'd love to see this cleaned up. I think it'd be worth it. I think the writing in this would be worth it. Um, so, you know, in, in 30, 40 years, when people are going through looking for movies to clean up, <laughs> yes. and you come yeah. across this podcast, this is, this is definitely one. <laughs> yeah, hopefully this film still exists somehow, somewhere. Hopefully. Hopefully. It's, our, it's out YouTube there digitally channel. now, so somebody yes. will have it. Yeah, so it's it's on YouTube in a couple places, including uh, our YouTube channel. So as long as I can keep that up, that's where it'll be. <laughs> All right, well, then that will do it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Lydia, thank you very much. This was a, this was a joy. Yeah. I wasn't sure what to expect with this film, and it turned out to be a really nice surprise. I agree. I expected to be really irritated with the storyline, and I, <laughs> I was very pleasantly surprised. That'll do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back in another month. Uh, until then, please follow the link in the show notes to all our social media and at all the different places you can reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you, especially if you get a chance to watch this film. We'd love to hear what you thought of it. Uh, until we talk to you again. Bye, everybody. Bye.